which we can understand who God is and how he's created the world. And so certainly every time we open up the Bible, we have an expectation that we will learn more about him and hopefully grow in our love for him. And so to that end, let me pray and then we'll get to Genesis 1 this morning. Uh, God, we do pray for your help this morning. We recognize that we are weak, we're easily distracted, we're far more fragile than we're willing to admit. And so God, we just come to you with open hands this morning, acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging our need for your help, and praying that you would speak to us loudly and clearly through your word. God, we know that you've been good to us, and we know this because you sent your son Jesus. But we pray that we would receive your word as good this morning, that we would see it as a blessing to us to better help us understand who you are in the way that you've made the world. So Father, please help us now in this moment. May your spirit be at work. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here's a question to ponder this morning. Why are we here? Now in asking that, I'm not asking why are we here, as in why are we in this building? That's an important question too, but that's not the question I'm asking this morning. The question I'm asking is more broad and more philosophical in nature. Why are we here? As in, what is our purpose on this planet? If you were to answer that question based upon how most people live, I think you might come to the conclusion that the reason why we're here is to make as much money as possible, or to have as much fun as possible, or to collect as many things as possible, or to experience as much of the world as possible before we die. It seems to be the goal that many, if not most, are chasing. But here's the thing, if collecting money and experiences and stuff is the purpose of life, then why is it that so many rich and famous people are miserable? If the American dream of upward mobility really is the promised land, then why is it that when so many get to the promised land, they still feel unsatisfied? And if worldly success and pleasure is the meaning and goal of life, then why is it that you can still feel so empty even when you've accomplished great things and experienced great pleasures? Let's be real here this morning. If the purpose of life is getting more money, more awards, more stuff, and more experiences, then life is pretty hollow. Because the reality is those things just don't satisfy, at least not in any lasting way. But I think if we're honest, deep down we know that these things aren't the purpose of life. We inherently know there must be something more to life than just chasing after the American dream. And indeed, I think the Bible's answer to that is there is something more. In our passage today, we're reminded of that reality. In Genesis 1, we are reminded that we were created for something more indeed. Our purpose as humans living on this earth is not just to collect stuff or awards or money. Our purpose is to reflect the glory and greatness of our good God to the world around us. And this has been our purpose from the very beginning. In God's first interaction with mankind in Genesis 1, he gives us, us meaning mankind, our purpose statement. He gives us our task. And again, I think we can summarize that task by saying that our purpose is to reflect the goodness and glory of our great God to the world around us. And explain why I say that and what that means, I think we need to turn our attention to the text this morning. So if you would, I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 1, verses 28 to 31 is where we are this morning. So the last few verses of the first chapter of Genesis Words will be on the screen here. You can follow on that way. You can just listen as I read, or you can look along in your own Bible. So Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, verses 28 to 31. Verse 28 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, 
I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Maybe seen. So over the years, Genesis 1.28 has come to be known as the creation mandate or the cultural mandate. And it's easy to see why Genesis 1.28 has earned those monikers. In Genesis 1.28, God gives a command or a mandate to his creation. And that mandate is related to how we should relate to the world around us or how we should interact with the culture around us. Hence, the terms creation mandate or cultural mandate. And it's that mandate that I want us to spend most of our time thinking about this morning. But before we turn our attention to the mandate, I think it's worth noting that the first thing we see in our passage today is not the mandate itself. Rather, there's a statement that begins the passage. So look at the way it starts in verse 28. And God blessed them. And then it goes on to say, God said to them. But it starts with, and God blessed them. The fact that the passage begins with that statement, and God blessed them, is worth noting for a couple of reasons. First, it helps us understand the nature of our relationship with God. God is not out to get us as humans. He's not our adversary trying to make life difficult. His first instinct, and we see this in his first interaction with mankind, is to bless. Listen, if your view of God is he's the cosmic cop waiting to get you in your sin, or that he's the angry old man in the neighborhood waiting to yell at you, get off my lawn, kids, then you need to recalibrate. That's not who God is. His first instinct when it comes to his interactions with us as humans is to bless. So it's important to see that. That blessing helps us to understand the nature of our relationship with God, that he's for us. But it's also important to see this blessing because the creation mandate that we're going to look at here shortly flows from that blessing. The two are not disconnected. Part of the way in which God blesses is by giving us a command. And it's important to see that connection because we don't always associate command with blessing. In fact, we oftentimes assume that if a person is giving us a command, they're either doing so, A, for their own benefit, or B, just because they want to flex their authority. I think it's clear here in Genesis 1 that's not what's happening. God's mandate is flowing from his blessing. In other words, he's giving us this mandate for our good. So the blessing language at the beginning of verse 28 is important because it helps us to understand the nature of our relationship with God, but also helps us to see that the mandate is for our good. That's his motivation in giving it to us. Now, having said all that about the blessing, there's one other thing we need to say before we turn our attention to the blessing itself. And that other thing that we need to say, or the other thing that we need to think about here, is the context. As you may remember from last week, in verses 26 to 27, the two verses that immediately precede our passage today, the emphasis was on God creating us in his image. Now, as we said last week, that image-bearing language implies that we are like God in some ways, and that we are to represent God on this earth. Or as author Hannah Anderson said it, being human means sharing God's nature in some way. Being human means living as he lives and doing what he does. And actually, I think it's that image-bearing function of being a representative of God and reflecting his character that's directly tied to the creation mandate. In other words, it would be a giant mistake for us to assume that verse 28 has nothing to do with verses 26 and 27. Verse 28 is not a standalone verse. It's not meant to be read in a vacuum. It's connected to what comes right before it. Carrying out the creation mandate is part of how we live as an image bearer. So with all that in mind, let's turn our attention now to the mandate itself. Again, we see it in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So really, there's five components here to the creation mandate, or five commands. Be fruitful, 
multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and exercise dominion. Now, realistically, I think we can boil those five components or those five commands down to two, because I think they can be grouped into two sets, or two sets, one of three and one of two. That we are to multiply and fill the earth, the first three commands fall in that category, and we are to rule over God's creation as his representatives. That's the second two, or the last two, excuse me. Now, again, I think both of those components are tied to the idea of bearing his image. And thus, we can summarize the overall task, or we can summarize all five by saying our purpose is to reflect the goodness and glory of our great God to the world around us. And we do that by multiplying and filling the earth and by ruling over God's creation as his representatives. Now, having said that, I think it's worth diving into each of those two components this morning so that we can better understand how these things or how these components help us to reflect God's glory and live as an image bearer. So let's start with the first component of the creation mandate, which is related to the first three, that we are to multiply and fill the earth. Again, notice how the passage starts, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, the most obvious application of this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the one that the church has picked up on most over the years, is the way we do this as image bearers is to make more image bearers. In other words, we multiply and fill the earth by having children. Now, certainly there are a host of complex issues that come with that statement. As 1 Corinthians 7 would teach us, not everyone's called to marriage. Some are called to a life of singleness, which would preclude the idea then that every person or every image bearer is expected to multiply through childbirth. Furthermore, there may be married couples that struggle with infertility or other health issues that prohibit them from having children. Or there may even be other godly reasons why we'd say children are just not possible for some people. So I'm certainly not suggesting here that Genesis 1.28 is demanding that all people and all Christians must have children in order to be faithful to this verse. But having said that, given what Genesis 1.28 says, and given the way it's been interpreted by the church over the years, and given what we read elsewhere in the Bible, namely, children are a blessing from God, it does seem that our default position as image bearers should be to reflect God the creator by creating more image bearers ourselves. He creates life, and we reflect his image by creating life also. Now, I should say, in light of Genesis 2, that should happen in the context of marriage. But the point is, he created, and we are to be like him in creating life. Now, obviously, there's some differences. God created out of nothing. That's not us. But when we procreate or have children, we are reflecting God the creator. Furthermore, being fruitful and multiplying means that the earth is being filled with more of God's image bearers, thus reflecting his image in more places. In other words, what we're saying When we carry out this command to be fruitful, multiply by having children, we are actually multiplying how many image bearers there are on this earth. There's this spreading effect. And if you think about that spreading effect from the perspective of this church alone, you realize this is a pretty serious deal. Jim and I tried to come up with an estimate this week of how many children we have in this church, from nursery all the way through 12th grade. Now, we didn't spend a ton of time on this. We didn't dive in the database. We just did a rough estimate. But the number we came up with was around... 125. Could be more, could be less, but from nursery all the way through 12th grade, 125. The point is, we have a lot of kids in this church, and some of those kids will grow up, and they'll live right here in Fremont, and they'll attend this church, and that will be a blessing to this community, and that'll be a blessing to this church. But there'll be also many of those kids who will grow up, and they'll end up living elsewhere. They'll spread out across the state, they'll spread out across the country, and in some cases across the globe. And the hope is that they would be image bearers, going and reflecting the character of our great God wherever they go. More than that, of course, 
Our hope is that they would know Jesus and they would make Christ known to others also. Again, the point is, though, as we multiply and fill the earth, there's a spreading effect where God's image is reflected in more places. So again, I think the most obvious application of the command to be fruitful and multiply is raise children as part of God's good plan for mankind. But I don't think that's the only application of what it means to be fruitful and multiply. As author Nancy Piercy argues in her book, Total Truth, being fruitful and multiplying can more broadly mean can more broadly mean developing the social world, building families, churches, schools, cities, governments, and laws for the glory of God. In other words, God's image bearers are to spread his image in whatever they do and wherever they go. So in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces and in our families and in our schools, we are to reflect God's image. We are to reflect his character in all that we do. We're to build, again, families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws, that point back to our creator and reflect his good character. So that's the first component of the creation mandate. Multiply and fill the earth. Component number two. Again, now we're consolidating the last two of the five commands. Component number two of the creation mandate is this. We are to rule over God's creation as God's representatives. Again, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So as we're told in verse 28, we are to subdue creation. We are to exercise dominion over, or as many translations will translate the word, we are to rule over creation. Now all of those words, subdue, dominion, rule, are words that have regal or royal implications. I think that's intentional. We are to represent the king. We are to represent the king as his vice regents or as, or as his under kings. And we are to do so by ruling over creation. Now to be clear, we're not meant to rule over creation with an iron fist, nor are we meant to rule over creation with selfish motives. Rather, we are to rule in the same way that God does, with kindness and gentleness. Some have used Genesis 1.28 as an excuse over the years to manipulate the world and its resources and its people for our own benefit. But to think in that way about ruling the earth is to fundamentally misunderstand how God rules. As even this passage indicates, God rules by blessing his subjects. He's a benevolent king working for the good good of those underneath his authority. And we are to rule in the same way. Like God, we should not look at people or resources as things to be consumed for our own selfish desires. But rather, we should look at people and resources as gifts God has given to us to be cared for, and to be cultivated. Yes, it's true that we are the apex of God's handiwork. And yes, it's true that we are to rule over things like plants and animals and resources. That's true. We are not on the same plane because we are his image bearers. But to be an image bearer means that we exercise our dominion to be someone who builds, who cultivates, and makes things better. Again, to quote author Nancy Percy, to subdue the earth means to harness the natural world, to plant crops, build bridges, design computers, and compose music. Our goal as God's vice regents then is to bring out the best in creation so that the world around us may see the glory of our great God. And we do this by cultivating beauty, making things better, using God's resources wisely and kindly, and responsibly caring for what he's entrusted to us. To subdue the earth does not mean that we exploit the earth or exploit its people for our own selfish purposes. Rather, it means we're looking to be good stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. 
He has given us dominion over everything else so that we can use that dominion to bless and to serve and to make the world better and ultimately to show the world this is what our God is like. Now, for the record, I know there's a lot of talk right now about climate care and protecting the planet, environmental stewardship. And oftentimes those conversations are unhelpful primarily because they're being driven by a political agenda rather than genuine conviction. And furthermore, in those conversations, creation often becomes the God rather than worshiping the creator. The creator is being completely ignored. So when I talk about blessing and serving and making things better around us, when I talk about being a steward, I'm not talking about the same types of things that our culture is often talking about. What I'm talking about is being faithful to live out Genesis 1.28. Now at times there may be some overlap in those discussions simply because the stewardship elements of Genesis 1.28 are real. Of course we as Christians care about making our culture better. And of course we care about being good stewards of that which he's entrusted to us. Things like creation and the environment. But we don't care about those things because of a political agenda. We care because we've been called to be his vice regents. And we want to rule over his creation in a way that is wise and reflects his goodness and kindness. So let me be clear here. When I talk about being good stewards, I'm not talking about some modern political mumbo-jumbo worship of creation. What I'm talking about is let's be faithful to live out Genesis 128. We are to rule over creation as God's image bearers, which again is one of two basic components of the creation mandate. Multiply and fill the earth, rule over creation as God's image bearers. Now before we go any further, I think it's worth pointing out that this mandate is directed towards all people. In other words, it's not just directed towards Christians, it's directed to all mankind. Furthermore, the creation mandate seems to still be in effect even after the fall. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon were all told in one form or another to replenish the earth and subdue it. That's the creation mandate. Psalm 8, which is quoted in Hebrews 2, essentially restates the creation mandate in a different form. So the mandate, in other words, what we're saying is this, is for all people and it's still in effect. And in that, we just have to be honest for a second. We have not done a good job of humans as carrying out the mandate given to us in Genesis 1.28. Instead of being fruitful, multiplying to his glory, We've instead often kept to ourselves and tried to build a kingdom for our own name. Instead of ruling over creation to bless and serve others and to bring out the best in creation, we've instead often been driven by our own selfish desires and agendas. The bottom line is we've not upheld our end of the bargain when it comes to what Genesis 128 teaches. But here's the thing, it's not too late. It's not too late to get back on the right path. And so to that end, what I want to do in the rest of our time together this morning is just give you two challenges related to each of the two components of the creation mandate. So challenge number one is look for ways to be fruitful and multiply. Now again, as I said, the most obvious application of the command to be fruitful and multiply is have kids. Now over the years, mankind has done a pretty good job of fulfilling that aspect of the command, although in recent years, the birth rate has fallen precipitously in certain areas of the world to the point that the birth rate is now not keeping up with the replacement rate. And what I mean by that is that in certain parts of the world, including the United States, if I understand correctly, the birth rate is not high enough to sustain the current population. Now, I won't go into a long economic discussion as to why that's troublesome, because that's not particularly relevant this morning. But what is relevant is that the most basic element of the command to be fruitful and multiply, having kids, is not being carried out like it used to be. And that's troubling primarily because most of the time, the reason why people aren't having children has nothing to do with biblical conviction or a leading of the Holy Spirit, but rather instead it's being driven by a spirit of the age. And the reason we know this in part is the places where this is happening are in the most secular parts of the world. 
Europe, and even parts of the United States. Now, having said that, I do think there's another component to be fruitful and multiply, and that's the component I want to focus on this morning. And that other component of being fruitful and multiply is the spiritual component. In Hebrews 2, Psalm 8 is quoted. Again, that's a restatement of the creation mandate. And in Hebrews 2, that psalm is ascribed to Jesus. All things are said to be under his feet, all dominion given to him. In that, it would seem the creation mandate is being restated with Jesus as the head of the mandate. And thus, as his followers, we carry out the mission to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth by spreading the good news about Jesus. Now, it's worth pointing out, there are some serious parallels between the creation mandate and the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The creation mandate, Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The Great Commission, go, therefore, and make disciples. In other words, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? There's, a, there's some parallels there. In light of what we know about Jesus, filling the earth and multiplying, then, is not just about physically filling the earth with more image bearers, but it's also about multiplying disciples and filling the earth with the good news about Jesus. Or maybe to say it in the terms of Matthew 28, it's about going and making disciples of all nations. When I was in college, God used a man named Mark Walter to share the good news of Christ with me. That's how I came to know Christ. Throughout the rest of my freshman year, Mark invested in me. He taught me how to read my Bible, how to pray, how to share my faith. To this day, I'm incredibly grateful for Mark. But at the beginning of my sophomore year, Mark decided to move to Japan. He felt compelled by the Great Commission, which tells us to go make disciples of all nations, to go to the nations, and specifically to go to Japan where there's little gospel witness. He wanted the Japanese people to know that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. That Christ died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And if anyone would turn to him in saving faith, they can be saved. He moved to Japan because he wanted people to hear this good news. And 23 years later, he's still there. I suspect one day he'll die there. He took the Great Commission seriously. Now listen, as I said earlier, I think the creation mandate is for all people, not just Christians. And I don't think that mandate has been replaced fully by the Great Commission. But having said that, I think only those who are genuine believers in Christ can fulfill the creation mandate with its initial intended purpose, which is to bring glory to God and reflect his goodness to all of creation. On this side of the cross, the only way to bring utmost glory to God and reflect the fullness of his greatness is by pointing others to the good news about Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is simply this. Are you taking that task seriously? As a follower of Christ, are you looking for ways to fill the earth with the good news about Christ? And listen, we have to be honest. The need to do this is real. Last week, in the service, we spent some time praying for those affected by the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. At last check, on Thursday, the death toll from that earthquake had crossed over 41,000 people. In fact, I read this weekend, it might be more, but just for the sake of our purpose, we'll say 41,000 people. Now, here's an honest question I have for you this morning. At any point in hearing that news about the earthquake in Turkey, have you ever wondered how many of those victims actually knew Jesus? Now, I'll be honest, prior to this week, I had not, but because of this passage, I did. When I went on a mission trip to Turkey in the summer of 2002, it was estimated at the time that there were 70 million people in Turkey, and about 6,000 of them were believers. Now, I'm not great at math, but I do have a calculator, and that means that roughly 0.0008% of the population knew Christ. Now, I'm sure the demographic numbers have changed slightly since then, but assuming 
And from what we know, there's been no widespread outbreak of the gospel in Turkey since then. Assuming the percentage number is still in the ballpark, that means of the 41,000 people who were killed, statistically speaking, three or four of them knew Jesus. Not three or four hundred, not three or four thousand, not thirty or forty thousand, three or four. That should be sobering to us. Over 40,900 people passed in eternity without the hope of Christ, and they will now face the wrath of God. And listen, I know the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in Genesis 128 is not just talking about taking the gospel to the nations. I know it's also talking about having kids. I know it's also talking about making a difference in culture. But surely in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ that we now have, we should be motivated to multiply and fill the earth with the good news about Jesus. So that people everywhere have a chance to hear about Christ before they, make, before they meet, meet their maker. Listen, if the end goal of the creation mandate is to bring glory to God, and it is, surely the best way we can do this is by telling others about Jesus. So church, let me challenge you this morning to look for ways to be fruitful and multiply. Now again, that includes having context in the kids of marriage. It includes building up culture, building families, churches, schools, cities, governments, But in light of the New Testament, I think it also means taking the Great Commission seriously. And I would argue that starts right here. To be a church that takes the gospel seriously here in Fremont, that we want people in Fremont, Nebraska to hear about Christ, that yes, we're great sinners, that yes, we've rebelled against our Creator, but Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, He rose from the dead. And if we turn to Him, if we repent of our sin and trust in Jesus Christ, we can be rescued. We should be serious about that message. We should want others to know because we want the gospel to multiply and go to the ends of the earth. So that's the first challenge. Look for ways to be fruitful and multiply. The second challenge from what we read here in Genesis 1 is this. Look for opportunities to express dominion over creation in such a way that blesses and benefits others. Look for opportunities to express dominion over creation in such a way that blesses and benefits others. Now, in the Christian world, I think we're often quick to run to the spiritual components of life and neglect the fact that we're real people living in real bodies and real places. What I mean by that is we tend to emphasize the importance of things like prayer and reading the Bible, which are really good. But we tend to downplay the importance of just living faithful lives in the day-to-day. In other words, what I'm arguing is this. We tend to put things in boxes. Here we have our spiritual box. Let's pray. Let's read our Bible. Let's go to church. Here we have our work box. Let's talk about spreadsheets and making phone calls and having meetings. And here we have our family box. Let's eat meals together. Let's do family activities together. Let's do chores around the house. And then over here, we have our leisure box. Let's go work out. Let's volunteer in the community. Let's paint a painting. Let's fly a kite. We have all these different boxes. And in our mind, they are completely separate from one another. Each box is standalone. They're not connected. So when we're doing spiritual stuff, we're doing spiritual stuff. When we're doing work stuff, we're doing work stuff, family stuff, family stuff, leisure stuff, leisure stuff. But understand this, that is not a scriptural way of looking at life. In scripture, it's clear, all of those things belong in one box. They're all part of living in God's creation. And as followers of Christ, every single one of them is an opportunity to bring glory to God. If I clean the garage really well, and I'm motivated to do so by the glory of God, that I want to reflect his orderliness, that is no less spiritual than reading my Bible for the glory of God. Now, you could make the argument that reading our Bibles is more essential to our spiritual growth, and I think that would be true. I could go months without cleaning my garage. In fact, I often do. But going months without the word would be exceptionally dangerous. 
But the point is here, all of life is spiritual, and all of life gives us opportunity to bring glory to God. There are no boxes here. We're all in one box, and all of it is, can we do this for God's glory? I think that's important to understand as it relates to the creation mandate. To rule over creation in a way that reflects the creativity and wisdom and kindness of our God brings glory to God. When we cultivate beauty, or when we make things better, or when we build something that lasts and blesses others, that's a reflection of the God who made us. And again, what that means is there's opportunity in every single aspect of life to bring glory to God. We have daily opportunities to rule over creation in such a way that others are benefited and God is glorified. Now, to illustrate what I'm talking about, maybe it'd be helpful to give an example. When we went to the Mayo Clinic at the beginning of January, there was a piano on the bottom floor of the main building. The piano was just sitting in the open, and anybody who wanted to play the piano could at any time. And oftentimes people would do just that. They would just sit down and start playing the piano. And it was always kind of cool when that happened because you're in this hospital setting it, there's music. It, it always was kind of a neat thing. But there's one particular moment with that piano that happened while we were there that I'll never forget. Now, maybe I need to set up the context here a little bit. At Mayo, we had some good days and some bad days, some days with progress, some days with regression, some days with positive news, some days with negative news. And on one of those hard days, we just happened to be walking on the bottom floor of Mayo next to the piano. And that morning, a girl was playing the piano, and she was singing as she was playing. I have to say that I'm, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic here, but it was just staggeringly beautiful. I can still hear her voice in my head. But the beauty of the moment, I don't think, was just from her singing. The beauty of the moment, in large part, was the context. Here we were at Mayo Clinic, surrounded by sick people everywhere. Some, no doubt, who will die within the year. And my wife was feeling sick that day. It wasn't a good day for us. But in the midst of that ugliness, there was this incredibly beautiful music. It was like a cardinal in a coal mine. Beauty rising up from the ashes. Now, I'm not a person who usually cries at music. I'm not a person who usually cries at all. But that moment got to me. Maybe it's just my allergies. Probably just my allergies. No, not really. It got to me. I was deeply moved in that moment because God reminded me, and this is what made it so profound for me. It wasn't her singing. It was, that it was a reminder to me, God has not forgotten about us. The world may be hard, miserably so sometimes, but he is still good and beauty still exists. Even now, weeks later, thinking about it in my office, it got to me again. Because all of, it, and all of it, get this, can be traced back to a girl on piano who ruled over creation in such a way so as to bring beauty to a drab place. Now, whether she was a Christian or not, I don't know. But I would say she was carrying out the creation mandate. She was taking the things of creation, in this case, wood and steel strings and whatever else pianos are made of, and she was using them to make the world more beautiful. But listen, as his image bearers, this is what we're called to do. We're called to build bridges and plant gardens and compose music and design roads and paint paintings and tame horses and feed cattle and grow corn and design computers and fix broken cars. And we're called to do it for the glory of God and for the good of others. And as Christians, hear this, we should be even more motivated to live in this way. Because not only are we reflecting our creator, God, we're also reflecting the redeeming work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to redeem us as sinners. We were lost, now we're found. We were dead, now we're alive. We were blind, now we can see. So when we redeem creation, which is broken too, by playing beautiful music or developing a new medicine or writing a carefully crafted letter to someone who's hurting, we are reflecting the redeeming work of our Savior. 
So listen, every single day, we have an opportunity when we wake up to reflect what God is like and what Jesus has done for us. My question for you, though, is this. Is that the way you think when you wake up? Or instead, do you wake up thinking of yourself? Or do you wake up thinking, my ah, life's just meaningless? Listen, I've known some guys over the years who come to me, and they told me they feel like their work is worthless because their job, in their mind, doesn't have meaning. Maybe they work in a factory or an office, and it just seems disconnected from the work of the gospel. And therefore, in their minds, it feels pointless. And they come to me, they feel dissatisfied and discontent. But what I tell them, and what I'll tell you this morning is this, there is no such thing as meaningless work. When everything we do, we have an opportunity to bring glory to God. It's not what we're doing, it's who we're doing it for that matters. So maybe you dig ditches. Great. Dig ditches for the glory of God. Make the best ditches possible. Maybe you scoop manure most of your week. That's great too. Do it for the glory of God and do it to be a blessing to others. Or maybe you've changed a thousand dirty diapers this week and you're wondering, what am I doing with my life? My encouragement to you is change those diapers for the glory of God and do it because you want to reflect his kindness to the world around us. Listen, there is no meaningless task when every task gives us an opportunity to rightly exercise dominion over creation. So do not despise the meaningless, but instead embrace the opportunity to reflect God's character even in the mundane. Look for ways to make life better. Figure out a better way to scoop manure or dig ditches or change diapers. Look for ways to create and cultivate beauty in the ugly world. Start to redeem that which is broken. Make a difference for the glory of God. This is what motivates us. This is what gets us up in the morning. As we think we have an opportunity today to reflect God's character even in the mundane. Even in the mundane. By the way, the good news is we don't have to do this alone. We haven't talked a lot about verses 29 and 30, but in verses 29 and 30, God talks about how he provides us with food and how he provides creation with food. In other words, we're reminded again, God is with us. He blesses us. He cares for us. So this idea of carrying out the creation mandate is not something you have to do alone. It's something he helps us with. So listen, to look at the world around us would indeed be to come to the conclusion the purpose of life is make more money, do more stuff, get more awards. But we know that's not true. We were designed for something more. We were made to be fruitful and multiply. We were created to rule over God's creation as his representatives. Or again, to say it in summary form, we were designed to reflect the goodness and glory of our great God to the world around us. And make no mistake about it, as verse 31 reminds us, his design was not just good, it is very good. So church, let us not live in the same way that everyone else around us is living, but instead let us live according to his design. Let us live to reflect the glory of our great God, that the world around us may know there is hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder here in Genesis 1 that our job and our task is to reflect your glory to the world around us. It's not about us. We know that one day we will die and we will be forgotten. But we know that your glory is forever. So we want to live to make you known. We want to live for your glory. If there's someone in here this morning who's struggling with a sense of purpose in life, I pray that you would remind them we have a purpose and that purpose is to reflect you. Now, ultimately, we understand that to do that, to actually carry out the fullness of what Genesis 128 is talking about, we must know you. And the only way to know you is through your son, Jesus Christ. 
So if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, I pray that this passage will be a reminder that they need Jesus. They need the hope of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the reminder in Genesis 1. Help us to do this this week, to live according to your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.